Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. We got a lot of stuff to get through. So last week, you played in your second Fandom Legends tournament. And I think that despite not winning, it was an overwhelming success. Yeah, so our goals were very different for this time around in fandom. We were streaming and playing kind of as an afterthought. Mostly we wanted to raise a bunch of money for charity in memory of our friend Alex Stratton. And we did. We raised an unbelievable amount of money over 5,000, like 5,500 and something dollars. It exceeded all of my wildest expectations. And certainly the listeners of the Arena Decklist podcast were a tremendous, tremendous part of that. So I wanted to start by saying thank you. My heart was very heavy last week and you all stepped up in a big way to not only help this charity and generate a ton of money for them, but also to help me. You helped me move to a more peaceful place, I would say, and start you know, remembering my friend fondly as opposed to just grieving. And you all were instrumental in that. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who showed up. And we also got fourth place. So we get to play again this week. Not really a bad result, given that I was infinitely distracted and maybe didn't register the best deck. Certainly were was several cards off in my Jeskai Super Friends list that I would have changed immediately upon conclusion of the event. But a fourth place finish isn't bad, and we get to do it one more time. Third week in a row for Fandom Legends. Pretty excited. Yeah, man, you crushed it. You did very excellent, noble thing, and... We're very proud of you, man. I'm, I'm happy that you did that. I'm happy it turned out so well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm proud of you as well. There's a, a couple of huge donations I have to say thanks for. One came from you. Tremendous $500 donation. I think you were in for $100 already at that point. So around $600 total in donations from you. Got to give a shout out to uh, Tian Nguyen, who not only is he a top eight pro tour competitor, also an incredibly generous person, donated $500 in memory of Alex, was good friends with Alex. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And tcgplayer.com stepped up with $600 that they donated towards the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So to the three of you, and of course, everyone else, no matter if you contributed a dollar, $10, $50, every single dollar was super meaningful, so super impactful, and I'm so thankful for all of you. I mean, even just the people tuning in and like absolutely have, sharing, have your, retweeting. Yeah, your your Twitch numbers higher. Have you like higher up in you know the list for people who were streaming Magic and streaming fandom and everything? I mean, it it all matters. And for you to raise that amount of money while you had like you know two to three hundred viewers is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And just gotta give a shout out to Fandom Legends too. Throughout their mainstream, they were sending people my way, plugging the effort. Uh, oh, that's really, awesome. Yeah, really thankful for all they did to bring awareness to the fact that we were trying to raise money for a good cause. And I'm, I'm, I was super happy to contribute all of my prize and a little bit more to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I hope it makes a big difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, same. Other than that, you so you have fandom tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we have the arena... I don't even know what it's called. Mythic Championship Qualifier something or other. I think it's still an MCQ at this point. I think you got the nomenclature right. Sure. That's happening this weekend. And we just had a 
relatively large organized play announcement drop this morning. So I feel like we kind of have to talk about that. Yeah. So certainly I have a piece to say about it, but it's actually shocking how little I have to say because I think this is a pretty well done announcement as far as its ability to communicate what's going on going forward. I think it was very clear. It was very succinct. It had nice graphics to help you understand gave the vast, vast majority of the details of the new OP system, which is certainly different from the announcements we've been getting over the past year, year and a half, which are often piecemeal and often feel rushed and incomplete. This was a big, big step up in terms of communication from OP. And so that being the case, you've read this, you've heard this at this point, you basically know what's going on. You've heard everyone's take and I just kind of fall in line with everyone else. I think there's Great goals to strive for here. Uh, I think the paths to all of the different things, the MPL, the the Rivals League, all of that stuff seems pretty clear, pretty well laid out to me. The missing pieces, there's got to be some way to chain events together. That's still missing right now. And it, it can't just be if you win an event, you get to go to the next one. Like things have to, there's got to be a little bit more meat on the bone. It seems like they're aware of that and are working on it. And I think that's a really important piece to how successful this OP system is going to be. I don't want to see the Josh Cho situation again, where someone breaks through and has their first PT top eight, and then they miss the net, like two PTs later, they're not on the tour anymore. Like that mostly should not happen. There should be a chance to string events together. I mean, that's, that's Alex Moduliton right now. Right. Exactly. Right. Another great example. And that can't, be the case. There has to be some way to string things together. As far as what that should be, I don't know if it should be a point system. I don't know if you should be able to like bank invitations. I think that's a really interesting idea that I don't really hear brandished around all that much as you're looking at multiple ways to qualify here. What if you could just pull them like up to a limit where you just have like five qualifications in your back pocket? I think that's got some issues from a logistics standpoint, but I don't know. There's got to be some way where multiple good finishes can add up to a way to keep playing PTs and keep generating the mythic points that will be important for being a rival or for eventually being an MPL member. And then the other thing, which I actually, the more I think about it, the more I'm starting to see as a feature and not a bug. And also there's definitely competing views on this. I think Grand Prix are still mostly useless in the system. They're just kind of big... PTQs. And by the way, thank you for giving me the ability to call these PTQs again. I hadn't gotten it fully out of my system and I'm glad I can go back to it. But they're kind of just big PTQs, either qualifying you for the Players Tour Regional or the Players Tour Finals. If you win the entire thing, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's not going to be the same circuit it was in the past where people are flying all over the place, chasing Grand Prix finishes. And I think largely that's a good thing. I think that was kind of toxic part of the old Grand Prix system. And while we bonded over the toxicity and it formed a lot of the backbone of the community, I think long-term it may not be the best way for magic to go forward. So I'm mostly okay with the move away from emphasis on Grand Prix, but I saw some people, I saw Matt Sperling tweet that he thought Grand Prix were overloaded and had too much value because they did get you straight to the players tour finals. If you win, that's not my interpretation, but obviously people have very different feelings about this announcement. And I I have a feeling you're going to have different feelings about this announcement as well. 
God, do I start from the beginning or do I just backpack off of what you were saying? I think, do you think just, we need to, do, do we need to like lay out exactly how this system works? There, there's no way in hell I'm going to try and do that because okay. it is so dense that you yeah, just have to dense. read it. Magic.gg, go read. Yeah, and then probably read it again. So yes, if you win a Grand Prix, you go straight to the Players Tour Finals, which is a lot. But it's not a, like people don't bank on winning, right? It's like right. a lot of people go to GPs with the hopes of going 13-2 or making top eight, whatever, and effectively winning their PTQ, right? And then once once they're in top eight, it's just like that's that's an added bonus. You know, some people actually care about it. Some people don't. I, I don't think that that necessarily changes anything. I do think that there needs to be something that is driving people to want to attend these Grand Prix or like want to even play in the main event at, at Grand Prix. And that's not really there right now. And I, I agree that how things were set up before there were a lot of like perverse incentives and it created a lot of toxicity and I'm glad to see that gone. But at the same time, it's like, I want there to be something for people to fight for, you know? I understand. I, I don't know that they're entirely worthless. I think like there's something to be said about having the flagship regional event. Like if you're in the Northeast, say having your GP in Providence that everyone from Boston, everyone from New York and everyone from DC can all go to is a big deal and important for that portion of the community. And they can fill that role, even if they're not filling the old globe trotting people flying in from all over the place role. They do something there, but maybe you're speaking more to the point of doing well at multiple Grand Prix should matter for something. Is that the take you're really putting forth? All right, let me let me start from the top, and then sure. we'll maybe circle around to this because I think it's all linked. First of all, the first couple paragraphs is just a lot of like back padding. There's no apology. There's there's no no sign that they care about. The, the fact that the community has just been in the dark for very long, which I think is kind of messed up. I think that if they wanted to do things in the right way and try and mend some of, I don't know, just like the, the feel bad that they've created in the last six months or so, the least they could just do is acknowledge the fact that they know it exists and it's been like a pressure point. Maybe. There's a time and a place for that. I think contrition would be a nice thing to see. I think there's a live stream tomorrow. It's going to go on Thursday morning. Maybe that's a better place for it than in the announcement that has to function as the framework. And I do think there's like- One sentence. There's a, there's a pinch. But we see room for improvement. Magic is growing, growing on both tabletop and arena, and we need a competitive structure that can grow with it. We hear loud and clear that our tabletop fans want more information about tabletop's future and how to qualify for Magic's highest levels of competitive play. And I agree. That's not, sorry, we messed up over the past six months. We should have done more, but it's acknowledging that there was a problem. Fair enough. They talk about doubling the prize pool, which is murky, right? Because they canceled flights for all the competitors and then put that money directly into the prize pool so that they could advertise it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's already like, they're they're doing the same thing where it's like, oh, look at like how big this is. They're talking about how viewership of Magic on Twitch and YouTube has more than doubled in the last 12 months. Well, 
we know that some of those Twitch numbers were basically fabricated. It's just like all of this is just kind of nonsense. They're they're just patting themselves on the back in ways that, you know, aren't aren't actually like things that deserve that. This is this is not actual growth. They did not necessarily inject a whole lot more money into it. Things like Twitch have not necessarily been crushing it. Like when the MPL started, it's like, you know, people like Brad, Juza, whatever would have like 800 people watching them, you know, and that's that's still about the same, right? Like I, I have not seen a lot of growth. Maybe there are just like a lot more streamers and all of those people have, you know, 10 people watching them or whatever and all of that adds up, but whatever. A lot, a lot of this is, it just strikes me as it is, purposely being somewhat misleading to make themselves look better. Like this is a, you know, shareholders call or whatever when it's not. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to escape from that when you're attempting to run a business. Right. And like all of this gets seen by someone and you use this to point up the ladder. I, I'm not discrediting what you're saying. I just think it's hard to expect there to be anything else going on. Word. When, when you start things like this that are clearly a little dishonest and then go in and talk about how like great this system is going to be or whatever, it's like, it's tough for me to believe that because there is that business speak and those business motives behind it. Okay. I understand where you're coming from. You know what I mean? Yeah. That out of the way, maybe, maybe that's just a me thing. Maybe you're right. I should just expect that. And you know, treat it like it's neutral or whatever, but instead it just like already leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And I don't know if I am, you know, biased or, you know, just particularly negative with regards to OP things that they have been doing based on, you know, the last like year and a half of me kind of being loud about all this stuff. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to, trying to, you know, come in with a open mind and everything and, be reasonable about it just so people know. I know that, you know, someone uh, posted a, a tweet in reply to your thing a couple days ago that was like, oh, I would just expect Brian to be the good cop and Jerry to be the one who complains about like whatever Wizards does or whatever. And it's like, I'm not just complaining for the sake of complaining, you know, like I do think that I have valid criticisms and I just want to make that clear. Sure. Okay. So they, they're killing the pro tour, the literal, the literal pro tour. And maybe these players tour events are going to feel the same. It does feel weird to continually rebrand and just blow up this thing that has had 25 years of history and that has mostly been a positive thing. Do you want my theory on why this is happening? And I I feel this now more than ever given that they rebranded to Players Tour so they could keep PT and PTQ nomenclature that I, this is complete conspiracy theory, nonsense talk based on nothing. But it's not a pro tour. You kind of have to change the name, right? I think they're avoiding the word professional for legal reasons. That is my guess. Yeah. I think there are implications that come with implying that the people participating in your tournament series are professionals. And I think they want to avoid those implications and they are very careful with wording as an organization. I often feel like their legal team is extremely risk adverse, which yes. has ups and downs. But I, I, that's just my read on their legal team as someone who's worked in that field. I think they're extremely risk adverse. 
And I think the word professional carries with it some connotation that they're actively looking to avoid. And that's why you see this rebrand. Just a guess. I don't know. Yeah, because it is weird, right? It's and weird. It's, it's also weird that they're, you know, all of these were, you know, mythic whatevers. And now the tabletop stuff is not mythic whatevers. And maybe that's just like, oh, we realized it was confusing. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thumbs up for that. But like players tour does not evoke any sense of like prestige, at least in my opinion. Sure. I understand where you're coming from. It's It's got to build its prestige. It doesn't have all the history behind it. Yeah. And it's got it's to gotta prove itself as something meaningful. Thing number one uh, that I hate the most from this announcement is that the churn for the MPL is so astronomically low. You would like a bigger drop off from members of the MPL. Well, the majority of current MPL members are there based on a random snapshot in time for pro points. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who maybe did not deserve to be in there in, you know, if, if you were taking like greatest of all time. And I think I would count myself in that, you know, it's like, if you were going to make a professional league for magic, the gathering, I would not put myself in it. So this is not me, you know, naysaying some of the folks who are in it currently. This is just like, it is very arbitrary how these people were chosen to begin with. And now they're just kind of like locked in for life. The majority of them are. Uh, there's certainly an ability to string a lot of years in the MBL together. You do understand, though, from a business perspective, why that is a positive thing, though. Like you don't want to have a ton of sunk costs on a year to year basis. They've spent time training these people, getting to know these people, grooming these people. Like you don't want to turn over that entire league on a year to year basis. And you can make an argument that it should be 12 players as opposed to, is it eight players now leave? So you could say like half the field leaves every year because there's only going to be 24 players going forward. Keep in mind. Right. I I am less upset about that. I understand from a business standpoint, why you would want to proceed in that way from an involvement standpoint for me, like, although I, I don't know that this is necessarily, if this was a goal of mine, like to be an MPL player, I understand why you think there should be more churn. But from a business standpoint, I get this decision. Uh, I get it too. And I've said before that, you know, they, they were not doing enough of that stuff as far as like cultivating professionals. And in theory, the MPL is supposed to provide that. So mm-hmm. I could see agreeing with you, assuming that they had actually delivered on that stuff. They have got more knowledge there than I do. So I, I have to kind of cede that point to you. They just haven't, man. And if if they were actually going to do that, then yeah, cool. Obviously you want, you know, 16 people to to be there for like more than one year or whatever. But right now, as far as like, oh, here's this big announcement about how you get into the MPL. It's like, well, yeah, actually, you know, this is a two year process. You have to get into rivals first and then you have to crush it for a year. And then maybe you, and then, yeah. And then maybe you get a contract for like an extra, you know, 30 K above what you were getting in rivals or whatever. It's like, why should I even try and get to this point? Because you're not doing anything to promote the people. And it's not really all that prestigious. Like their, their weekly play stuff has just been a gigantic flop. And there's not really any promotional stuff happening outside of it for these players. So like, what is the goal? Like, why would you even want to get into the MPL? I mean, a lot of it is the consistency you're talking about. 
it's the equivalent of platinum. You're likely to be able to chain it into multiple years playing magic. You get to have your magic career at that point when you reach that threshold with some degree of certainty. And there's no, I think if you fall into rivals, you have some knowledge that, okay, it looks like I am at least at risk here. Maybe I need to start rethinking my options. It's not just like the rug is pulled out from under you. And I think that's a net positive. As far as the prestige of the MPL, more has to be done to build that. And you're right that the weekly league was a pretty big misstep. I think that the new structure is better. I'm certainly seeing more interest on social media and from people in what's going on there. I haven't seen the viewership numbers. I personally haven't watched too, I'll admit. I generally have had stuff going on in the weekends, usually like MCQs. And it's kind of awkward that that's the time that those are falling on, the time when you're looking yeah. to engage your player base. But that's always how magic tournaments are been, have been. That's not, not that's not anything new. GPs are always on weekends. PTs are always on weekends. So. No, but say you air it on like a Wednesday or a Thursday, like the Super Leagues. And obviously this has its own like set of issues or whatever, but it's like that could inform people for like what they should play in their MCQs that weekend, right? Like that could be cool. Yeah, it could be. But as we've seen with these events, there's a lot of lag in deck submission. That, and, I mean, that that's another issue where yeah. it, it just makes them not relevant. Like the format has already passed them by by the time they air. Why should people be interested in this? Like they're not interested in it because of the decks and for the technology. They're not interested in it because of the players, because they're not really getting you know promoted all that much anyway. So it's like, yeah, we kind of see why this thing has been a flop. So do you think... If- Having this level of clarity and knowledge for how this is going to go going forward was one of the missing pieces they needed to have in place before they could start doing the type of stuff you're talking about, before they could start building brands and before they could start emphasizing the MPL. You kind of needed to know all the pieces around it. And I think they put the horse before the carriage. Wait, that's the right way to do it. The carriage before the horse in a lot of ways by going MPL first and then getting all this stuff around it. I agree. I agree with that. I think that they think that, or they thought at the very least, that they were going to be doing this stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I was in the MPL. I went to their boot camp. I, I talked to them about a bunch of different things and what their vision was going to be and stuff like that. It seemed like they thought what they were doing was correct and it was going to be enough. So I highly doubt that it's like, oh, well, now that we have these systems in place, now we can start doing the star building stuff. Because it's like they were talking about that stuff in January. Well, I want to emphasize something though, and this this is not a point I bring up in order to drag anyone or to take shots. I, I think a lot has changed over the past six months, but specifically, there's a lot of new players with their hands in the pot as for as far as organization organizational play goes. Yes, and I I think that just the tone and the shape of this announcement points to me that things are working in a different fashion. Again, this isn't to put anyone down. I'm not trying to take shots at the old team. I just think they have more resources now and they have more knowledge and they have more to work with and they're leveraging it appropriately. Well, in the, in the old team is also the current team. You know, it's okay. like they they, yeah. they got they got some people added, but this is still the same group of people working on spot this. on, spot on. And certainly there were, you know, if you're overworked and understaffed and you don't have the right people in place, it's hard to put out a really good product. So it sounds like some help has arrived as far as that goes. And uh, it, it shows in the quality of this announcement and the quality of forethought given here. 
even if I seed, and, and I mostly do, even if I see that the MPL branding has been a miss up until this point, I think this is the point where you look to get it right. And even just adjustments to the weekly play thus far have shown they knew it wasn't working in the old form. They needed to do something else. And we're getting closer to a, a better product at this point, I would say. Word. W- one thing I will note is that as far as trying to get into the MPL, I don't think that anyone is actually going to be like, oh, like this is this is now my goal because mm-hmm. it is it's a two year long plan where at the end of it, you talked about like the stability being the driving factor or whatever. It's like I'm not going to live my life unstable for two years, right. hoping to get like a modicum amount of stability, especially in a system that is currently set up by requiring you to spike tournaments. There is no gold, silver, consistent invitational right. thing, which I think is a huge problem. And it's it's not just, you know, because we want to reduce variance or whatever, but I also do think that there's something to be said for having there be consistent progression where if you were going solely off of like spiking tournaments and gaining invites that way, it's like, all right, I did great. I got my invite. Oh, I did poorly for a little bit. Okay, now I did medium maybe now I do good again, it fluctuates too much, right? Where I would rather see like a solid progression, like get those dopamine hits for when you're like inching closer and closer to your goal instead of just these huge variant spikes like every couple of months or whatever, right? Like don't you want someone to participate in a system a lot and just have them have this track that they can go off of where it's like, oh, I hit bronze and then I hit silver and then I hit gold and you're constantly looking forward to like hitting these smaller goals, even if you're not necessarily spiking tournaments. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the missing piece right now. And I don't think anyone is arguing that. And I don't think they are arguing that it's not an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, Generally responses have been such, and uh, I will also take a moment to acknowledge they've done a good job today of just responding to a bunch of people and getting more information out there and clarifying stuff. But one of the tweets I did see was that they are cognizant of the fact that there has to be some way to chain events together and are working on it. Now, but that's if, something you want to see here, 100%. And you can't yes. excuse this exclusion from this entire system. It's a big part of it. And they, they knew it was a thing. They knew it was an issue before. Right. People knew that like gold and silver were getting KO'd. And there were issues with that. And then they still went ahead with creating this system. And if if you had to make a system where you knew that you wanted there to be some sort of like gold, silver level thing, like you would build the system off of that. You wouldn't build right. a system and then be like, oh crap, now how do we integrate this? Because they're already telling you like how many people are going to be invited to each tournament and stuff, you know? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. If, if that's something that you have on your radar and you know is important, why didn't it make the cut at this juncture? Very fair question. And I think while the vast majority of this announcement gets props from me, I think I'm excited about the general structure. And like I said, the presentation and the communication, I think that all looks very nice to me right now. That is the one large slop I would lay on it, that if this is important, it kind of needed to be part of the puzzle right now. And if it's yeah. not right now, I, I, I hope it comes quickly. And I hope that tomorrow sheds a little light on it. We'll see how the Twitch chat goes. I This isn't going to predate that, unfortunately. But hopefully when that occurs, people are 
present in chat and asking that question because that is the big piece. That is the missing piece of the puzzle. And if that comes together well, I think this is a very, very promising system for the future of organized play for Magic. So the last gripe I have is that there are three regions, the Mm -hmm. Americas, Europe, and Asia Pacific. I think that is very, very close to reasonable, except Latin America should probably be its own region. I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, I will also say I hope that the Latin American audience gets one of those players tours. I don't, if we just do three events in America, that's pretty messed up, quite frankly. Yep. I think it's important that that region gets good representation. It sounds like they're going to have a tournament series with more paths to the players tour, which I like to see. The question is, what is the regional invite system going to look like? Are people going to be able to get their visas to come and participate? Obviously, uh, American entrance policies to the country can be a little bit opaque sometimes. And I know people have had struggles in the past. Hopefully all of that gets sorted out and the Latin American region is able to get uh, meaningful access to these players tour tournaments. I I don't want that to be an issue for them. Also, I want to see the scale of those players tournaments, players tour tournaments, by the way. And it sounds like based on what they're saying, they sound a lot closer to a pro tour than an RPTQ, which I find very exciting. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And it, it all depends on how the tournament feels, how it's handled, uh, stuff like that. The The main thing that I'm worried about for LATAM is like if the players tour tournaments are in North America, whether or not these players who earn invites are going to be able to travel here. Like, are they going to get some sort of compensation? Are they getting flights? Is the tournament series going to award enough for them to buy a flight, you know, like that so, is base, that's why I want it to be its own region. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. The, there's a second document that came out about the WPN qualifiers. And I think it was distributed to WPN stores. And I've seen that document. PTQs are required to give flights to the players tour event. WPN qualifiers are not, but it's recommended that they do. Okay. Now the difference between those two is not, super clear to me i i don't know what i don't know what events are going to end up as player store qualifiers and what are going to end up as wpn qualifiers and i don't know how much of each latam is going to have i don't know if they're going to have a ton of wpn and not much player store qualifiers or what so we will see how that goes is all i can say about that but it does seem to be something that's on the radar yeah okay that's good uh, a lot of this is we have to see how it's all going to shake out and everything. The right. the big takeaway that I, I get from this announcement, though, is that tabletop organized play is still alive and well. Yes. Which yes. It, it gives me a great sense of relief and it makes me happy. And I hope that our listeners, anyone else who has a DCI number, whatever, like I, I hope, truly hope that all of these players are able to find some way to exist within this system that makes them happy and makes them, you know, feel rewarded for participating. That is ultimately all I care about. Same. And I I also think your goals align with wizards goals. I mean, they, they want the same thing. They also want to make money along the way, which can't fault them for their business. But ultimately I think that's what they're trying to achieve here. We talk mostly about the paper side of things. Anything you want to say about the arena side of things? I love that they are keeping discretionary slots. 
I like that they have discretionary slots to go right into rivals. I think that's really cool. One thing I was thinking about is I would love to see them use those discretionary slots in a non-orthodox fashion, like not just grab people and assign them, but have some unorthodox tournaments, like a tournament for non-male players would be great for one of those slots. I think that would be a really interesting thing to cover and to have be a really high profile event. Just a quick thought I had. I, I am pleased they kept those discretionary slots and I'm interested to see what they choose to do with them. Yeah, uh, I would probably just expect more of the same, but I agree that you know them continually listing discretionary invites as a possible means of qualification for like all the different tournaments is huge and a thing mm-hmm. that they should have been doing for a while. Yeah, yeah. It, as long as it's clear, it, I think it's a great policy and uh, should be part of their game plan going forward. And it, it's crazy that that goes as high as the Mythic Invitational, but the fact that these two branches are somewhat separated means I I don't know how you complain about it at this point. It's just a feature of the arena system. It's a reality of the product they're trying to sell. And I am on board with it. I think there's cool stuff you can do with those discretionary slots. Yeah. So I I have my gripes. I think that they are rather large, but you know, at the end of the day, this, this does look promising and I hope that there's not something I missed. I hope that they work on all of the, the flaws that people have been quick to point out already. I'm very happy that they are actively engaging in the community and uh, answering questions and stuff, whether or not that that actually continues to happen or if, you know, it's, it's not like in one year out the other, like it has been, they continue to like listen and iterate based on feedback that they get. Uh, that remains to be seen, you know, mm-hmm. but it does look promising and I, Hope. I I hope that this leads to good things. Me too. I'm right there with you. Word. Arena tournament this weekend. Let's talk magic. So you you played Scapeshift in fandom. You won very easily. Uh yes. this this was basically at the height of people trying to do things to beat Scapeshift. Disagree. Disagree. Yeah? I, I think the height came next week. I, I think that was still a point where people were not properly respecting Scapeshift. And I, I'll say this too, and I'm not going to claim credit for this alone because everyone who was in that particular tournament did so, but the Scapeshift list adjusting and adding deputy detention to the mix was a big change as well. And people hadn't really appropriately accounted for that card being in the mix either. Sure. But I, I think the week following is where people really did adjust to Scapeshift and We've seen it fall out of the meta indicators that we presently have. Things like the uh, Magic Online PTQ, it just kind of got demolished and didn't really have a strong showing. Certainly has fallen off in ladder play a little bit. And I don't I don't know what we want to do with fandom data. I mean, I'm very in tune with it because I've been participating, but it also had an off week last week and I, I think didn't do all that much. Although there were only two people playing the deck last week. Yeah, see, that, that's the thing. And like everyone in the, the MPL thing is like moved off it. And hmm. it's just it's it's very confusing to me because my interactions with like watching the deck, playing with the deck, playing against the deck. I'm just like, damn, this deck is good. It doesn't it doesn't fold to Legion's End or Deputy of Detention or any of this nonsense. It has a lot of answers to like Blood Sun and all that crap. It has a good backup plan and Hydroid Graces or just like making your land drops with field of the dead you know why why should i play anything other than this deck i am i'm not a scapeshift hater by any means obviously i've played it quite a bit had a nice little tournament result with it the deck impresses me over and over and over i think it is 
certainly in the top tier of decks, and I wouldn't fault anyone for just playing it. I think that's a totally fine decision. I think sideboard options against it have improved. You mentioned Blood Sun. Blood Sun is more annoying than you give it credit for. Certainly the deck has answers to it, but it shuts off Blast Zone, which is a big point for it over something like Alpine Moon, which I think people were at first going to Alpine Moon, which is a kind of irrelevant card. I, I agree that Blood Sun is much better and much stronger overall. Yeah, the the attrition games that you play against Scapeshift are meaningful. And that card you get from Blood Sun. Now, granted, my Blood Sun experience mostly comes from the Jeskai Super Friends side of things where I am looking to play a longer game and I have tools to do so. But that card matters over time quite a bit. And I actually think Blood Sun is a problematic card for them. And then you can go as far as Fall of the Thran, which I think, again, assuming you have a Teferi in your deck and you have reasonable ways to ensure that your opponent can't just snipe it with something like Dovin's Veto, which if you're playing Fall of the Thran, you mostly have Teferi. Like, I don't think Vampires is going to go that route. So you're probably either Esper or Jeskai is my guess. Uh, I think that card is actually very strong against Scapeshift. And if you are suited to play the typical long game against Scapeshift, Fall of the Thran can absolutely be the death knell against them. And that was a new piece of technology that showed up. I know Luis Salvato played Jeskai Super Friends and included two copies in his list. I am playing Esper in fandom, not Esper Hero, which may make you sad. I am playing Esper I would Control. expect nothing less. I know. I know you knew I was going to get to this point. But I also have Fall of the Thren in my sideboard. And I I found that it allows me to play those longer games and I can beat their attrition-based plans as long as I have Fall of the Thren. Yeah, man, Fall of the Thran's good. Bloodstone yeah. is good. Yeah, and these are things. These are cards that did not see any play when I played Scapeshift in Fandom Legends. So yeah. just the existence okay. of those cards is pretty meaningful. So my my experience with Bloodstone has been it it hampers them from doing anything meaningful until they remove it. You know, assuming like just playing like some Hydroid Crisis doesn't you know necessarily win you the game or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, they find a way to remove it between Teferi and Deputy, which are temporary answers, but still good answers. And then hopefully make some zombies. And then if they are able to remove the zombies and redeploy the blood sun, it's, it gets harder and harder, you know, because Scapeshift doesn't have a card draw engine outside of Hydroid Crisis. So it's possible that they chain Crisis's, keep finding answers to blood suns, whatever. I've I've seen the games play out that way. Obviously, if the Blood Sun deck has a clock at some point, you know, it, it just it makes it so much easier. You can't try and like lock them under Blood Sun and not have a clock. I, I don't think that that's like a, a reasonable plan. But even something like Chandra, like six mana Chandra is a, is a good enough plan. I think you can with Narset. That's I, I differ a little bit. As long as you have okay. access to Narset as well, then that's a reasonable plan. That's fair. I mean, yeah, you still have to defend against like the random one threes and one ones mm-hmm. and two twos that they make Absolutely. and stuff. But yeah, that's that's entirely possible. Uh, Fall of the Thran is a little bit different because the board has to be set up in like kind of a very specific way. It's like you had had to have been like disrupting them, stopping them from what they're doing. Maybe have some sort of battlefield presence on your own. But like Fall of the Thran, when they have like a couple two twos, is pretty bad news. I think it's it's still fine because. You get to four mana, and then they get to four mana. It's way better for you if you both only have four mana, and then hopefully mm. you can remove the two twos or whatever. Uh, so I've, I've had games play out that way, but it's just it's not as much of a slam dunk 
as I would like, especially when you're like on the draw and they resolve like a circuitous route and get super far ahead, you know, it can be really tough to find the right time to actually slip that card at all into play. Yeah, I think one of the hallmarks of these two tier one decks, vampires and scapeshift, I think are the clear tier one, although I know you're a little Esper. bit lower on vampires and you're higher on Esper. We'll get to all that stuff as we move through the dis- this discussion. I think the hallmark of both these decks is that it's very challenging to give them a miserable matchup against you. It, they just are, they're too strong. They're too consistent. They have power plays, like you mentioned, things like route into just a bunch of fields that are extremely difficult to beat. In the case of vampires, it's basically any Soren hand. Soren is the most messed up magic card. It's why is there a plus on the sacrifice ability? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I don't know. That's a crazy decision, like just completely bonkers. It is really dumb in that games you play with Soren and games you play without Soren are totally different. Yeah, vastly different. The The supporting cast is not even close to as good as Soren, but Soren into anything is completely absurd that it's worth building your deck around. Dude, it's it's three mana. It's super cheap. It only, it like, as soon as Ixalan rotates, it's complete garbage. You mm-hmm. know, it's just, it it is basically like just the worst design, I think. You can, you can make a case, and it, obviously all this depends on how you want to define these terms. I think there's a fair case that Soren is like, top four planeswalker top five planeswalker of all time now obviously that allows you to accept the fact that you are playing this very silly deck with some very mediocre supporting players but once you overcome that hurdle just on term just in terms of what the card can do it is absolutely freaking absurd it feels like when stoneforge mystic was banned but they allowed you to play like the the precon deck <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting it you know it's like you you didn't even have batter skull in that deck or whatever but it was like well if you bought this like you shouldn't have to take your stoneforge mystics out you know but it's like yeah if you, if you could play stoneforge mystic and 40 mem knights or whatever like that's what this deck feels like yeah i know what you're saying uh i got to cast a soren I guess not cast a Soren, but have a Soren in play as Esper Hero. And I had other Soren as well. So I had vampires to use with Soren as Esper Hero. And that is a level of power you basically cannot fathom. Like having access to that Planeswalker in a deck that's actually good, uh, it's very challenging for your opponent. Yeah, I believe that. A, a lot of the stuff with vampires, you could say the same about like what you're saying with Scapeshift, where People were not fully respecting Scapeshift. They were not doing things like playing four Bloodsun or whatever. And part of the problem with that is that Bloodsun's a red card and there there aren't mm-hmm. a lot of good red decks. And yeah, with Vampires, I think Devout Decree was a card that people are now catching on to. People are playing copies of it. You included, I hope, mm-hmm. in your Esper yeah, deck. Two copies. Yeah, so I maybe Scapeshift gets worse, but Vampire certainly gets worse too. And it like everything is, you know, back to even basically. It's like, oh, I have some answers for what you're doing. You have some answers for what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, it's basically like these decks are just as strong as they were two weeks ago. You know, maybe they're worse against the field because the field's a little bit more prepared for them. But like they're they're still the best decks. Yeah. So the question I think you're facing as you head into this arena MCQ is do I fear that people have figured out the right weapons to beat one of the best decks? And like I said, it's hard to really get the answer to that question completely wrong because no one's finding 70, 30 matchups against those decks. It's just not possible based on what they do at their core. So 
are you going to accept some 45, 55s to just mush all the nonsense that's going on? I think that's a question you have to answer as you head into this weekend. I don't know how much I want to talk about my fandom decisions because as I play this tournament series more and more, I am convinced that it is just very different than playing a typical tournament. Like it's 16 players, you know I, I know who the players there. are exactly. And I know their tendencies. And so basically this week, knowing who the players were, I went in hard targeting vampires, mono red, and I wanted to have some ability to play against Scapeshift, and I also felt favored against Esper Hero, which is another deck I thought people would pick up. And against a bunch of other stuff, I'm going to have some hard matchups. I will have to piece together wins, but essentially I thought I had a version of Esper Control, which leveraged those three matchups really well and leveraged some of the principles that I've leaned on for fandom, things like having one-ofs that force my opponent to alter their play patterns, which I think is very important, come open deck lists and a little bit more fluidity in my general like inclusion in one ofs because I will know what my opponent is playing ahead of time and can mulligan appropriately. I think that's another piece of the puzzle that I don't really see people altering their deck building to account for yet. So my list this week is loaded with one ofs. I think I have eight or nine. It looks almost silly on paper. Uh, and maybe it is silly. Maybe I've, you know, used my uh, confirmation bias to talk myself into just some bad magic. Who knows? Well, okay. Ch- check this out. You gave me a little anecdote uh, about playing against Reed and he had Soren turn three and didn't play it because he felt like if you had your one of spell pierce, he just lost the game on the spot. Mm-hmm. And now I think you're potentially. So when you do like a scientific experiment, right, it's like you, you have the the various variables and like some amount of control over the experiment. Mm-hmm. What is what is the term for when you introduce too many variables? I, I am not a scientist, Gerald. Or, I have no anyway, idea, but there is a term for it. So I, I think that someone is going to look at, like Reed is going to look at your Jeskai list and be like, all right, he has, you know, five sweepers, whatever. He has one spell pierce. I need to be cognizant of this spell pierce and not get got by it. But when they look at your deck list with nine one-ofs, it's just like information overload and they're just going <laughs> to stop playing around things. Yeah. A lot of the one-ofs aren't of that function. They are removal spells. That are so contextual. It's, it's, yeah, so it's redundant, mostly. Right. Correct. There, there's one instance of an absorb where I think that's like a play around card and a cry of the carnarium, which I think is a play around card. But other than that, it's just basically optimizing removal for a given matchup. Right. And the absorb thing may or may not matter because if they're playing a deck where absorb is disguised, like if, if you could reasonably be holding up in mana for removal or whatever... But against any other sort of deck like Scapeshift, if you either have Absorb or you have nothing, because if you had like a Planeswalker, you would probably cast it. Mm-hmm. So it's it like it is very easy to figure out like when you have a counter spell, right? Because oh, you're sure. gonna like you're gonna tick up Narset, find some other Planeswalker or whatever, and then not cast it and hold three man open. And it's like you're not tricking anyone, right? No, there's some of that for sure. Like I said, I I don't want to use good results as a way to completely affirm this theory. But I felt it. And you think about the alternative in the Reed situation, because I read about this in my article. I didn't actually want to play Spell Pierce. I didn't feel like Spell Pierce was a particularly good card at the moment. And had it not been open deckless, I would have played zero Spell Pierce. But I think the impact of having zero Spell Pierce in my deck is is huge, actually. Yeah. I think that matters all over the place. So just having access to that effect is 
is so, so impactful and the deck building cost is so small that I think you're really incentivized to take those kind of larks. Right. And if you played like two or three spell pierces, they're just going to play around it always. And right. because it's spell pierce, it's going to be dead. Dead. Exactly. And yeah, you, you basically are forced into playing low numbers or, you know, zero, but certainly playing one if at some point someone is going to play around it or, uh, you know, they're not going to play around it and like get got by it. Those are definitely benefits. But yeah, you can't you can't really play two or three if it's not like, you know, you're playing against mono is it phoenixes and they're forced to tap out every turn to cast right. spells. Right, exactly. So yeah, I, I like that. I am I'm just concerned that you're like, well, now my necklace is all one of's. Like, have fun. You figure <laughs> right. it out. It's like, well, that doesn't do anything. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. Unless the cards like actually blow people out in scenarios where they don't play around. Which, you know, the Cry of the Carnarium does, or maybe the, a Spell Pierce does, or whatever. But, like, Absorb, I, I wouldn't even, you know, put value on having a one of Absorb. Interesting. Well, we'll see how it works out. I, I think that because my goals were so specific, given the players in this tournament, I am very pleased with the choice of Esper Control. I do think it has some merit going into this weekend, and I want to talk about that generally. Because there's there's a deck that I would expect to pick up, actually given mostly MPL performances, it's mono red, which has almost completely fallen off the radar uh, as we head into this week. I think it's poised for a huge resurgence going into this MCQ weekend. And while both Paulo and Martin, I believe went undefeated against Esper in their MPL rounds, there were far more Esper hero decks than Esper control decks. And I would also build Esper Control a bit differently than what I've seen floating around. Like I have three Basilica Bell Haunt main, which I think is incredibly important in that matchup. Yep. And pretty much game altering in and of itself. Yeah. Elite um, Guard Mage, by the way. Come on. Mm-hmm. Come on. Right. We're, we're going to get into that when we go to the hero side of things All for right. sure. But if you are concerned about mono red and if you think people are going to pick up hero in large numbers i do like esper controls positioning against a broader field though like i expect this mcq to potentially offer there's weirdo decks floating around there's like this blue green quasi duplicate nonsense that people are talking about there's the golo scapeshift builds that sam black popularized if you are fearing things like that in large numbers then i like the proactivity of Esper Hero a lot. And here's where you get to do your thing, Jerry, because I know this is the deck that you're super high on right now. Yeah, so Esper Control to me is effectively doing the same stuff as Esper Hero, maybe uh, a little bit more of a top end, which is kind of nice in some of the grindy matchups. But think about how your games play out when you're doing basically the same things, except in one game you play a turn two hero and in the other game you don't. Maybe you like kill their land or elf or something. Mm-hmm. I like my spot so much more with Hero Precinct 1 and it's not close. Just because it, it plays offense, it plays defense, it makes all of your planeswalkers better. Just having this thing that can generate an army, you can attack their planeswalkers, which means that you don't have to like one for one removal spell everything, which is, you know, just a losing plan against planeswalkers in general anyway. I, it just blows my mind why why you would even play without hero. I just don't get it. Well, Gerald, at some point, I have to look at the decks I'm playing and say I am winning with this deck and losing with this deck. 
And when I can't give you a reason why that is true, because conceptually, I agree with basically everything you were saying. And I I was pretty sure I was going to play Esper Hero this week. Like that's where I was leaning. I think your list in particular is cognizant of the mono red matchup in ways other decks are not. You do play Basilica Bell Haunt in small numbers. I think your list had two. I tweaked that a little bit and went three copies. Yeah, I'm up to three now. Okay. Now, now, yeah. now that red actually should be respected, like I, I do a lot of things where I small hedge for various things where it's like, okay, mono red's 5% of the metagame. Like I still need to have a plan for this. I need to be prepared for it, but it's not my main focus. Like beating scapeshift and vampires is right. And now that mono red is like, Oh, maybe it's 10% now it's like, okay, well, what can we do to improve that while not sacrificing a whole lot in other spots? It's Belhon. And without question, that is the impactful card you want in that yes. matchup. It just is such a swingy, swingy card. Well, f- first and foremost, you need to kill Experimental Frenzy. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, then you can play 30 Belhons. It doesn't matter. But yeah, past that, once once their Frenzy is not living for more than a turn, Belhon is the best card. Yeah, and your deck also very well, to se- well set up to do that with for Deputy of Detention. This is the other place you really differ from prevailing wisdom. I I would say there's actually a bunch of places you differ from prevailing wisdom. So when we're talking about like Esper Heroes matchup against Red and you're hearing the results from PV and Martin and you start to get a little nervous, I would point out very clearly that your deck is almost completely different. Two copies of Tonebound Lich, uh, four copies of Deputy Detention, three copies of Basilica Bell Hunt. Those are not cards we're seeing in those numbers or at all on the uh, other side of the table in typical Esper Hero decks. Here's how games go against Mono Red. You play a thing, it dies. You play a thing, it dies. You play a thing, it dies. And then you play like a Soren and rebuy something. And that's when you start turning the corner, stabilizing, uh, and then eventually getting ahead. With things like Elite Guard Mage and like, you know, no deputies, whatever, like it is so difficult for you to actually stabilize against Mono Red that I, I just don't understand it. As much as I would absolutely love for Elite Guard Mage to be a playable magic card, Esper Hero could certainly use the card advantage, the velocity, whatever. So that's that's my sticking point with your list. I, I feel the lack of velocity so hard so many times. And it, look, I'm conceding the point that conceptually I really like this deck, and I'm willing to accept the fact that I'm misunderstanding something about the play pattern and I'm putting myself in positions to not maximize my resources. And that's where I'm getting burned by the lack of velocity. But ultimately that is what drove me away and has me playing Esper Control as opposed to Esper Hero. I I felt it. I felt it in many, many games. And another point I want to ask about is like Bolas' Citadel too. Like that's a card where I see everyone else playing sometimes two copies. You've relied on Command the Dreadhorde instead. And it makes sense in the context of your Tomebound Lich Basilica Bell Haunt deck. I get where you're coming from. But that is a card that addresses some of those issues very, very hard, assuming you've protected your life total to that point. Oh which my god. I, I guess Command does too. Command the Dreadhorde is so much better than Bull's Citadel. It's just not even close. The, like the the majority of matchups in standard right now are decks where you're not even getting good stuff out of their graveyard anymore. And Command the Dreadhorde is still much better. You just get two planeswalkers and a deputy or whatever. And it's just, it's game over every single time. Whereas Bulls to Citadel, what you play it and there's a land on top, right? And right. it just doesn't do anything the turn you play it. And then still, you know, it's, it's a six mana experimental frenzy basically. And it's, it's just not 
that good. You you need like this quick burst of board position. And not only is like Bullets of Citadel variance heavy, but it just doesn't necessarily do it. Like, why would you hope that there's like Teferi Teferi on top of your deck when there's already two in your graveyard? You could just command them both into play. Do you think that Citadel favors a longer game setup? And I'm, I'm thinking about the context of like Basilica Bellhaunt versus Elite Guard Mage, where Elite Guard Mage incentivizes the game to stretch out because you want to use all the resources you're generating, whereas something like Basilica Bellhaunt shrinks the game. It reduces the number of resources available to players. And like I said, I believe Command the Dreadhorde to be the correct card in your deck. And I think, like you said, it's not all that close when you're doing things like Tomebound Lynch, Bellhaunt. It's just a very, very different card in your particular build. I think where you're trying to stretch the game out kind of in perpetuity, as some of the other Esper lists are trying to do, I see merits of Bolas Citadel. But I think what you're going to say is you shouldn't be trying to stretch the game out in that fashion. Yes, but so that's that's a factor of the format as it stands currently. So if there are a lot of Esper decks, and you had to be really careful about this before, where you know everyone had like Elder Spell main, second copy in the sideboard, whatever, you could command the Dreadhorde and still lose unless you're also able to set up like Teferi plus Slaughter Racer you. Mm-hmm. You know? We don't really live in that world, although maybe the MPL results are going to change that. I'm not sure. But like, yeah, if everyone has a bunch of Elder Spells and stuff, you probably want Bulls to Citadel. You know the games are going to be grindy. They're going to take forever. And you also want things like Narset main deck. And I think Narset main deck is completely fine. If you're looking for another card advantage source, that is a reasonable way to go. And in Esper list, like after Nexus dropped off and we didn't really need deputy that much, like playing Narset instead of the deputy slot was what people did. And I I think that that's a, a fine way to do it. It's just not the best way to do it right now. But I do think you could easily find room for a couple Narsets if you're worried about like, you know, the whole velocity constricting resources thing, because that that is very real. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are playing this event, right? You are qualified. I'm, I'm qualified for the arena thing. I I think my final mythic score some point when I was in Roanoke was like 247 or whatever. And I have not hit Mythic since then because there's been no reason for me to do. So I've I've just played like, you know, 10 games on ladder every week or something. Right. Yeah, it's been a while since I grinded to Mythic. Basically, I qualified for the first MCQ weekend, had to miss it to do coverage. Pretty quickly assumed that I would never get the opportunity to play whenever again. I am doing coverage this weekend and knew that, so I did not attempt to qualify for this one. Uh, I also already know, because they did, as part of this announcement, have the foresight to announce the dates of the next MCQ weekend, which I do appreciate advance notice. Yes. And I now know in advance that I am also doing a show that weekend. <laughs> so, And look, I do one show a month. So to hit three times is like... It's pretty, pretty high variance. Yeah, but it's, it's like they're gunning for me at this point. But I will not be playing any of these MCQ weekends anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, that sucks. Uh, but you are going to register Esper Hero. Is that a certainty at this point? No, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm also looking at, at Scapeshift where, you know, every time I see it or play against it or play with it, I'm just like, this deck's busted. Do you want to and, talk about what your scapeshift list would look like right now? Uh, I would have a very tiny black splash for Noxious Grasp, I think. Okay. Interesting. Though. That's the card you're going for. 
Uh, well, I think it's pretty easy to do. You just play like a guild gate or two guild gates or whatever. Mm-hmm. And how many copies would you play? I would play three in the sideboard. I, I think it's like one of the best cards in the mirror just because it, it kills deputy and Teferi and all that stuff. And then obviously there are a lot of like splash matchups where it's just like, Hey, this, this comes in against like these green mid range decks or whatever. It's cool. I want to propose assassin's trophy while I propose it. I also know the problem with it. Like giving your opponent a land is very, very impactful, yeah. but I could also see spots where hitting their field at the dead matters a lot as well. I don't know. Yeah, I but you, interesting. you just get into a situation where like, you know, both players have four fields or whatever. And I don't know how much killing one actually matters. Maybe it does matter a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I've played the scape shift mirror enough to know the end game gets very goofy, uh, very strange things often happening. It was nice when it felt like nobody else had deputy attention. It felt very easy at that point. Right. <laughs> but it's gotten harder as time has gone on. Yeah. I mean, it, isn't it mostly just going to come down to deputies and maybe making like big crises and like outdrawing them just to make sure that you have answers for their things. I mean, obviously there are situations where, they Teferi and step scape shift and there's like nothing you can do, but like you need to be able to break out of that situation, right? Yes. Step one is Teferi for sure. And that's why something like Noxious Grasp makes a lot of sense for the mirror. Teferi is just like the game on easy mode and you'll play with and against games where one player gets it and just kind of wins on the spot and that's the end of it. But after that, I would agree with how you're saying games play out. It's usually like first big crisis that you can break parity with can carry you a very long way. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. There's there's a lot of options. Like I want probably four Veil of Summers. I kind of want three Noxious Grasps. Kind of want two Devout Decrees. Would like some sort of engine thing for the mirror. I, you know, like Narset is okay, but potentially gets attacked. Big Teferi is fine and also is just a good card to bring in against a bunch of decks that are like trying to Blood Sun you or Alpine Moon you or whatever, disrupt mm-hmm. you in various ways. I don't know if like mono red actually requires some help or not, but I, I really don't think so. The Plaza of Harmony matters a lot. I don't particularly like that card, but if I was concerned about a lot of mono red, I would be more inclined to look yeah. to Plaza of Harmony. I, I was going to play a couple with uh, extra guild gates, basically. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable concession. For me, I was weighing uh, Plaza of Harmony basically versus Field of Ruin, back when I was making the decision. And at this point, I view Field of Ruin as indispensable. Yeah. I think if you're excluding it from your deck, you're just strictly making a mistake. The it does too much. Zombies, yeah, it, it's an incredible card. Uh, it, it's so important in the deck. So I guess the balance isn't between those choices anymore. I have to find a choice somewhere else, one of my other flex land slots. I was also only playing 28 lands, whereas default wisdom seems to point to 29 at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm more likely to go to 30 than I am to go to 28, so. Yeah, I I don't fault you for that. You you certainly want to make all of your land drops. Uh, it's a pretty incredible deck. I think it's a pretty neat deck in the context of standard. I think it's unique as far as play patterns go. It's a fun villain to have. I don't know if other people feel this way or it's just me feeling this I, way. I don't. Just okay. so if Krasis didn't exist or if Field were like, you know, plus one land or whatever. Just like if the deck were like a, a turn slower, I think it would be fine. But when you're on the draw and they play like circuitous route, you're, you're just like dead already. You haven't done anything meaningful and they're going to make a bunch of zombies. You're going to have to spend time instead of like developing your board and pressuring them to removing their zombies, even if it's like a legion's end or whatever. And they're, they're like every turn from there on out, they're just going to be making like eight power. 
You know, it's it just like it doesn't stop, which is why I don't like it that much. <laughs> it doesn't stop. Make the zombies stop, please. I can't take it anymore. I would identify Teferi as the problem card. I think all of, all of these nonsense strategies. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like velocity, tempo. It makes their like end of turn scape shift really stupid where you just can't interact with it at all, you know? Right. But as long as we're accepting Teferi as an omnipresent factor in the format, I like the back and forth of scape shift games and the interesting constraints they put on deck building. Look, there's a lot of things about Teferi that I don't find particularly optimal. Unfortunately, it's going to be here for a long time and we should get used to it and understand that it dictates a lot of what we are capable of doing in formats. And I will say it's not a mistake or really a surprise that these last three weeks in fandom, I've had that card in my deck. I think playing with yep. Teferi Time Raveler is... Kind of crazy. Only Soren is really up there on power level. And like you said, you got to give up the rest of your supporting cast to get that card. So. I, I, I think one of the biggest indicators for how busted a card is, is whether or not I have purchased the animated version on Arena. Okay. <laughs> and you and, have animated Teferi. Yeah. And very few other cards. Okay. But it's like, yeah, I know I'm going to be playing those Teferis, you know? Yeah, they're going to get a lot of run. For a long time, they, they're not going anywhere. I think if you were on the play, your first Teferi should have to cost four mana. <laughs> like if you're on the draw cost three and like your subsequent to fairies, they all cost three, but the, the first That's, one on the play should cost four. That is a creative nerf. And I don't think we're going to push that one through on arena, unfortunately, but I understand where you're coming from. You know, it, it would just be better, right? Like, obviously it's just nonsensical and everything. Like the card at four mana would not see a whole lot of play. Right. But yeah, ter- turn three on the play is just gross. It's so funny looking back at all these three mana planeswalkers and us. I just remember being like, well, they can't be that good because they wouldn't make completely busted three mana planeswalkers over and over. Like, There's just no way you'd make the games strictly about that. Uh, False. (laughs) They are, in fact, that good. And uh, we were very, very wrong about that point. I think Domri is like the perfect three mana planeswalker. Maybe both Domri's. I could buy that. Yeah, they are certainly far less format warping. Yeah, they're they're fun. They go in your decks. I mean, they they do stuff. They make you happy to actually like cast them. But yeah. you know, your opponent plays even like a turn two Domri. You're not like ah game. Yeah, yeah. Teferi is something else along with Narset. All right, other decks. Anything else on your radar? You considering a last second switch? Any of these weirdo strategies? I I think they at least bear a brief mention. Some, like I said, some of the things I've seen pop up the quasi duplicate list. I think it's mostly nonsense. I think the escape shift list with nexus of fate is interesting and may actually have promise but i am concerned with both its vampires and its mono red matchup and if those are ticking up right now i don't think you can realistically play that deck what else anything else out there you've got an eye on right now i feel like i have to say something about vampires uh if if people cut their sanctum seekers for dusk legion zealots you will see a huge improvement that's funny because I played against a Mardu Vampires list the other day, and I thought the list was honestly pretty bad. Like, just didn't need to go the route that the deck was going. But those stupid Dusk Legion Zealots were such a beating because it was like a Judith deck with a bunch of Dusk Legion yeah. Zealots. They were very, very difficult to play around. Play around in, in what way? We're talking I, about I mean, Elvish Visionary, right? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. just game plan around them. Like essentially at all times they had more gas. Right. I would like 
wrath and it didn't matter whatsoever. They always, always, always flip their legions land. And I'm playing on the control side now, keep in mind. So of like course. these type of attrition things really matter to me. Whereas sure, there's a lot of decks that probably doesn't matter against. But from from my perspective, it was a problematic card to deal with. And then it just had fodder for Soren without sacrificing your card quantity, which at some point becomes an issue with Soren. If you're just yep. sacrificing all of your vampires, you're going to run out of gas eventually. Not if you're playing Dusk Legion Zealot. Yeah, uh, velocity and being able to use all of your mana every single turn, and obviously those two concepts are tied, but Dusk Legion Zealot does a lot of that, and I, I think it fixes a lot of problems, including, you know, makes Soren even busted, allows you to get to five mana to actually hardcast Champion of Dusk, makes it mm-hmm. more likely that you flip Legion's Landing, which again gets you to five mana. Card card is just great, and Sanctum Seeker is uh, a big pile of poo. But you hate vampires in general, correct? Uh, I think Dusk Legion Zealot goes a long way towards fixing some of the problems. But yeah, I'm I'm still not a huge fan of the deck. I think it's a fine backup plan, you know, okay. but I'm not just like, oh yeah, like vampires, I'm in. It's it's just too too reliant on Soren for the power yeah. level, you know? Well, what about access to the London Mulligan? Does that you find more Sorens these days? And if you're if you have Dusk Legion Zealot, you can mulligan more yeah. reliably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have definitely felt like I, I've played a decent amount of vampires as of late, and I, I have not felt that bad about going to six. Sure. Uh, you know, it is almost free because the, the the deck just in general like curves out pretty well and has a decent amount of ways to create sticky board positions and even like refuel a champion of dusk. And yeah, I think that's probably pretty reasonable. Interesting. So interesting. Interesting times in standard. I think there's many viable options, a clear top tier. You know what you're targeting on a week to week basis, but we're still seeing that churn at the top. Oh, yeah. And even if some of the play patterns are not the best, Teferi will always lead to a certain style of magic that I understand a lot of folks won't like. Uh, I do think the churn and the deck building decisions have remained interesting throughout uh, a function of more options that we have been kind of praising ever since uh, the design philosophy shifted a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is one of those standard formats where there is variety as far as color representation and type of archetype where it's like you have, you know, combo, aggro, mid-range control, a lot Mm -hmm. of different versions of combo. You know, you have like ramp, scape shift, you have Nexus just being like, you know, the spell-based combo. You have uh, Feather, which is kind of like a creature combo deck. Yeah. So it's like whatever whatever kind of deck you want to play, you have that sort of option. I'm not a huge fan of how the games themselves actually play out, but the the deck building aspect and deck selection aspect has been really cool. Yeah, right there with you. So one one last question for you, because this is kind of a blind spot in my preparation, and it's the thing that just crossed my mind because I was bemoaning the lack of good red cards, good red decks outside of like mono red. How how is Boros Feather against vampires? I know that a lot of people are talking about how like they just can't kill Feather or whatever, but like how is the matchup just in general? So I only played it very early in the format. I was Same. high on Boros for a while, and I think the vampires lists have certainly changed since then. And I, I think they've changed mostly to Feather's benefit. Like you said, removal has congealed a lot around Legion's End. And you can understand why. I think that card is pretty incredible right now as it stands in the format. Uh, but it's got a huge blind spot against Feather. And actually, I mentioned all the one-ofs in my Esper control list. A lot of them were in contemplation of Feather. And not that like I think I'm going to see a lot of it, but in the fact that okay, I can play this card 
and it's pretty low cost. And if I don't, I just can't kill a feather ever under any circumstances. And I think Vampires has mostly given up that chase and Feather is going to stick a very large majority of the time on the battlefield. And once that card gets going, pretty incredible against Vampires. You have Shock, which as I proved last week is an important card against Vampires that nobody has for the most part. One mana removal, also Reckless Rage, another important removal spell that kills actual everything in their deck short of Adanto Vanguard. If you have a hole, it's probably that card, but you can answer that in post-board games if you want to go to Baffling End or something like that. Or, or you just kill everything else and ignore it, you know? Like- sure, and, and force them to use... Actually, that's a lot of Feather's play pattern is just like forcing them to pay the four life and then leveraging that later on in the game. Right. Uh, that comes up quite a bit as well. So I, I think it's Feather favored. That's my read on it. But I do think, again, you just can't push things that far against vampires. And certainly if vampires wanted to account for it, it could. As it stands now, I think Feather comes in a slight favorite, but a dog in a lot of other places that Vampire just has good matchups. So. Well, one of the reasons I put down Feather was that like you would, this is the, the exact type of deck where you would like start to do your thing and then Scapeshift would just explode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a, a plan with like four Blood Sun and two Flame Sweep would likely be pretty good. And mm-hmm. Feather and Aurelia are both effectively indestructible against vampires and you know very very good just in general and you have like all the cheap removal your mono red matchup is fine like it actually seems like feather could be a good choice so i don't know i'll I'll probably have to just jam some games on arena leading up to it and figure it out for myself but i thought that i would posit that to you and see what you thought well it won the last mcq and i believe i i know it beat vampires in the finals in the hands of emma handy I think it beat vampires in either the quarters and the semis as well. You know, okay. small sample size, obviously. But I, I do think some of this math checks out uh, and Feather could be reasonable. And the adoption of Blood Sun in a lot of ways is post-Feather era, I would say. Like, it's not it something is. we were really considering at that time. So that could be a big a big game swinger in those scapeshift matchups, pure Nexus, you still get destroyed by, but I just don't believe that deck is out there. I can't tell you the last time I faced a pure Nexus yeah. deck. That that um, was, that was one of the question marks for me too, is like, how much should I actually respect this? Because right now the format is super wide as far as, you know, the, the types of decks that are available and are doing well. So you're, you're really constricted by which things you can focus on completely. Cause right. if I, if I play like, four demystify four bloods on some flame sweeps like i don't have a sideboard anymore you know correct uh, correct I, I don't think you have to account for it quite frankly i think okay. i think you can mostly let that matchup go that has been my response and also this is a a really good time to have that stance if mono red is ticking up as we expect it to we know what that deck the horrible things that happened to pure nexus uh, from mono red yeah, we saw that firsthand in a tournament we covered where Nexus was just blown out of the room by mono red. So if you are making the same read as us, that this is a huge weekend for mono red, potentially you do not want to go anywhere near Nexus right now. Yeah. And at the very least uh, there are a few Nexus players and mono red could just beat up on the Nexus players. So it's possible that even if they do exist, you could just end up dodging them anyway. And sure. uh, Feather specifically uh, seems pretty bad against Nexus, but if I end up playing like Esper or, Scapeshift, I could see either of those decks just still being fine against it, but 
Scapeshift is, again, it's been so long since I've seen Pure Nexus. I don't even have a ton of experience with Scapeshift against it, even despite having played that deck a bunch. What I've always been told is that Scapeshift is a dog against Nexus. I, I believe and, it. I, I just think it is a more palatable matchup than Feather against sure. Nexus. Yeah, That's I can buy that. Yeah, I mean, you're you're 30% instead of 25% or whatever, but like, right. yeah, you, you have a shot. You have things like Dovin's Veto and Teferi, which are kind of annoying for them. You have a reasonably mm-hmm. fast clock. So, yeah, I got some work to do, I suppose. I At the end of the day, I'm still just like, why am I not just playing Scapeshift? Because deck seems busted. It seems like it doesn't really lose anything. And, you know, there are other fine choices I could make a more risky kind of like hard read approach by trying to play something like feather and just prey on people. But it's risky. There's a lot of nonsense well, out there. You need 10 wins. And in a format where you need a preposterous record, what do you think? Are you more incentivized to go with the hard read or is it just like, if you think scapeshift is just the bread and butter deck that screams like, seven and two on to day two, hope to get lucky and make a run to me. It doesn't scream 10, one dominate the tournament. Yeah, no, I, I mostly agree with you. I know that people, I think, I think like Paulo and maybe Sam party or whatever have like argued in favor of like, you just play the deck with the best overall win rate or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, I'm not sure where I fall on that, especially because like this tournament I mean, take me for example, right? Like I qualified for this thing two months ago or whatever, have played some standards since then, but not a lot. And it's entirely possible that like some person queued with like Grixis back in the day and like they're just up in here jamming Grixis again, you know, like this tournament is weird. It is a weird tournament. I I don't expect it to be a lot of people who are, uh, you know, super up to date with the metagame and everything. And like, you know, maybe that will be day two of the tournament effectively, but uh, as far as like the first day making a hard read doesn't necessarily seem like it would be the most beneficial. So I don't know. I understand where you're coming from. Let's not forget our limited friends who also get to participate yeah. in this tournament too. So yep. that's another wrinkle folks who may not even play standard as a rule can find themselves invited here. So who knows what that metagame is going to look like. I would love to see a bunch of data come out of that. Oh, me too. Uh, I know we didn't last time. We we just saw day two data, essentially, which was nice. I appreciated getting that information. Day one data would be crazy, though. Yeah, I mean, it would it would probably just blow your mind. It would be like yeah. so nonsensical and not helpful, but it would just, it, you know, <laughs> it would be wild to look at. Right. I would enjoy it. Yeah. Since, since it is kind of open and random and I don't feel like doing some sort of hard read type thing is good for this tournament. I should probably just get in more reps with scapeshift and like tune my sideboard and stuff. But maybe the takeaway is that if you have like a magic online MCQ or something, uh, or if you just want to like grind the ladder, like feather might just be a good choice for that. I could sign. I could co-sign that. I generally agree with what you're saying. Tight. All right. Uh, is, is that about wrap us up for this standard portion? I think so. I think I've said all I have to say. I mean, that's that's half true. I could talk about magic literally till the end of time, but I know. I've said the appropriate amount for one podcast. Let's put it that way. Word. Uh, I tried Rakdos Aristocrats, by the way. It was really bad. Yeah, every time I get drawn to that deck. <laughs> it, it, looks, it looks so nice on paper. It does. It looks so good. Yeah, The, the new cards are great. good. Not a great deck. We'll have to wait and see what the next set offers. Maybe yeah. Judith can step up. 
Anyway, uh, that's that's going to do it for the specific magic talk this week. To cap off every episode, we solicit the five folks in our Discord for uh, various questions, and we pick our favorite one, answer it on the podcast, and they get an arena deckless pin, enamel pin that can only be gotten uh, through this, or if you're, you're friends with me, or if you are my co-host, because I know I mm-hmm. gave you one. Yeah, I got my pin this weekend. Very excited. It looks beautiful on my arena deck list play mat, which you also shared a picture of over in our Discord. I used that for my MCQ, which did not go all that well, but I looked fly playing it with my awesome play mat and pin. Uh, another point about our Discord and listeners, I just want to bring up real quick. Uh, we did a weirder episode last week. And we asked for feedback on our Do You Block the Tutu episode. And I just wanted to check in with you, Jerry. It sounds like people really enjoyed it. And I, I think the general consensus is we should do more of that than we're presently doing, but not at the exclusion of our core game plan, which is this. I heard a lot of people talking about once a month, once a quarter, which generally falls in line with my thinking. I think those episodes are important, but not something that we should be abandoning our core mission for what, what kind of feedback did you get from folks? Yeah, I, I feel basically the same way uh, as you do as far as like, you know, that, that was my takeaway from the whole thing. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that people enjoyed it. I think maybe like 30 or 40 people actually presented some sort of feedback. And, you know, some of the feedback was, yo, I got in through, arena so i haven't been playing that long what the hell is a man of war that was andrew w. right you know yeah, and it's we, like, we messed that one up a little bit <laughs> we like, definitely yeah. referred to some old cards yep damn okay uh that yep. is that is good feedback and that is good to know but uh overall yeah it, it was positive i just i i wish that there was more of that reinforcement i guess either positive or negative you know whatever it just it didn't seem like we got feedback from a ton of people that's interesting. I, I felt like a lot of people reached out. I also specifically asked for it, Jerry. If you want people to give you feedback, you have to not only ask for it on the podcast, you put a tweet out there and you say, let me know what you think about this. And a lot of folks mm. responded to me with really good points. Like you said, the one about old cards came up a couple times. And as we were doing it, I knew that was like a criticism we deserved and we're going to get. It's just hard where you know there's this card that perfectly illustrates your argument and you have to take a half as good example from the present set to make the same point that you don't think will convey things the same way. But I get it. I understand. That's definitely a failing on our part. And well, I'll try I, and do more to be conscious about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly try to do that too. Uh, the, the thing that was kind of going through my mind was that it's kind of canonical for an ETB bounce your thing, like a, a, some sort of tempo tool to be a mana war, like reflector mage mm-hmm. is a mana war. And also mana war was in one of the most recent sets in modern horizons and stuff. So yeah. it, it is kind of recent, uh, which is why I felt okay making that comparison. And when we talked about soul shift and stuff, I described what it did. So yeah, we, we try to be cognizant of that. Obviously we're going to fail sometimes. Right. We went, we went hard. We talked putrid leech. We talked blightning. We talked demon of death gate. Like that was a lot for folks to keep on top of. And I respect that criticism. Uh, we'll be cognizant of it going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so want to do this question? Let's do it. Hit me with it. All right. This question comes from buttons and Buttons says they feel like they squandered their shot at, uh, an MC by not taking their prep for Barcelona seriously enough. 
Now they're hesitant to get back on the qualification grind because they worry they uh, will just waste the next opportunity as well. How can I be more disciplined in my practice routine? Do you have any advice? Well, I think you have to ask a lot of questions of yourself here. Why didn't you take Barcelona seriously is step one. And there's a lot of good answers to that question. There's a lot of acceptable answers to that question. You were busy with life. You were busy with uh, school. You didn't get time off from work to appropriately prepare. All of those things are reasonable. And real life is something that doesn't always mesh particularly well with high-level competitive magic. And I think you owe yourself some amnesty from ceding to those real-world pressures from time to time. But if you just were like, I don't care about this. I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to do my practice. Well, that points to a lot of other issues with your relationship with competitive magic play. And like, do you want this? Why are you, why are you concerned with getting back to the dance if when you were there, you didn't really care all that much? I think these are all interesting questions to ask yourself. And I don't want to sound like I'm condemning you. I legitimately do not know the circumstance under which you failed to prepare for Barcelona. So it's very hard for me to understand what you need to do for yourself going forward. I I think as just blanket preparation advice, I think you need to find a way to prepare that you enjoy doing. That's really the key to effective playtesting, because if you're just grinding to grind, you get nothing from it. You need to have questions you're trying to answer. You need to have goals you're trying to achieve with each playtesting session, and you have to do it in a method you enjoy. Because I, I don't know you, Buttons. I'm not sure your magic situation, but I am pretty sure you're not playing for a living. It doesn't seem like magic is your career. So beating yourself with these expectations and demanding 15, 16 hour days from yourself is is kind of a crazy approach to it. You should not feel worn down or obligated or hurt by magic. You should feel grateful for it and empowered by it. And you should enjoy the time you're putting into it and be grateful for the experience to have participated in Barcelona. And if that's not the case, you have to ask a lot of questions about why. And if it is the case and something just went wrong with your process, just look for ways that you can really commit to testing that you enjoy. And a lot of times it can just be conversation. It doesn't have to be games of magic. I think there's such an emphasis on playing X number of games among competitive circles. And it's very harmful in my eyes. I think that time could often be spent thinking and looking at deck lists and talking with people you respect. All of those things are valid means of preparation. In my case, I probably overemphasize those things at the expense of playing games. And that certainly haunts me from time to time. But that's just kind of where I've laid my lot and how I enjoy engaging with magic. And you need to ask yourself the same questions about how you're going to engage with magic going forward. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Easiest way for me to answer this question is certainly by projecting. And, you know, I I read this question and I kind of see a lot of myself in it, which is then why I I project. And a lot of that, like if I were to qualify for a thing and then not practice for the thing and then like wonder why I did that, it it would likely be a fear of failure. And I don't necessarily know that that is the reason uh, why Buttons did this, where it's a lot easier to just say, well, I didn't practice enough. Of course I did poorly. But I, I do think it is very common. 
And I agree what you said, Brian, as far as you got to ask yourself a lot of questions because this requires a lot of self-awareness and, you know, some soul searching or whatever you want to call it, where you have to figure out why you actually did this, what qualifying for an MC means to you and like what you want to do with that qualification, because a lot of people are just happy that they got there. And if, if that's the thing, like, are you going to readjust your goals or are you just going to be like, yay vacation, you know? Uh, because it sounds like you were disappointed. The, the fact that you, you may have squandered this shot. Some people squander their shot. They get there, they do poorly. And their, their next thought is, well, I want to get back so that I, you know, don't make the same mistakes. And that, that was certainly what happened to me, but yeah, figure out exactly what, the MC actually means to you what your goals are, what you would like to accomplish. And if it is just like, you know, I, I want to get there and like try my best and see what happens. Well then cool. Like the, the fear of failure stuff, if that is on the table, if that is in play, then you just get to ignore that. You know, it's like if, if at the end of the day, at the end of the tournament, you're going to be happy with your preparation being good. And, you know, maybe you made some mistakes or whatever, but at least you tried then then that is something that you should focus on and just focus on trying and definitely agree with what Brian said where adding discipline into your practice routine it it's not really what it takes you do have to make it fun you have to enjoy it and that could be a reason why you skirted those responsibilities you know like if you're not having fun you don't enjoy the format or you don't enjoy the disciplined, rigorous nature that it seems like playtesting is like, it doesn't have to be that, you know, you should just figure out exactly what it is you want to learn and take joy in that process of actually learning and improving and getting better. And, and that'll be it, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of us are going to have to have the same conversations that buttons is presently having about relationships to magic because now we have some OP on the table where we haven't in a long time. And that's basically going to ask all of us to think about what we're trying to achieve, what our goals are, how we want to engage with this system in a way that is healthy, that maximizes our chances at success, that uh, allow us to achieve our goals basically. And that's going to mean something different for everyone. And you can't just ape the style of the person next to you. Just because your friend is grinding super hard and is into every single event and all over the place, it, it doesn't mean you have to take the same approach. We all find this game in different ways. And I think one of the neat things about this OP system is that it seems like there's a few paths to follow. And we just need that middle ground that we talked about as our chief criticism. And if we find that middle ground, I think there's going to be something for everyone under the system. Just make sure you know exactly what you're trying to achieve before you engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. Game? That's game. Good luck.